Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm the host of A People's Theology, Mason Meninga. In this episode, I talk with Megan Murphy-Gill. Megan is an Episcopal priest and the author of the recent book, The Sacred Life of Bread, Uncovering the Mystery of an Ordinary Loaf. You can get connected with Megan and her work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of A People's Theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five-star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Meninga. There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. Today we have Megan Murphy Gill with us. I'm super excited to chat more about your new book, uh, Megan. You have a new book called The Sacred Life of Bread. And uh, I just mentioned just a second ago that I've become a little bit of a foodie and home chef over the last few years. So any book about food and faith is always going to be really interesting to me. So I'm really excited to chat more about the book. Uh, But before we dive into the book, I want to know a little bit more about you. I want the listeners to know a little bit more about you. So who is Megan Murphy Gill to Megan Murphy Gill? Oh, wow. What a good question. Well, I'm an Enneagram four, so I'm still just certain. Oh, you're one of those out. people. Yeah. I'm a, I'm <laughs> yeah. a fellow Enneagram four as well. <laughs> so that, that is, that is who, who am I is a constant journey. But what I do know is that I, um, let's see, I started studying theology as a Roman Catholic, uh, mm. In 2006, I started doing that formally. Um, And so I was in my 20s and I also started baking bread and cooking at the exact same time. So as I started really studying theology as uh, a Catholic, I was also experiencing a certain theology in my own kitchen and a certain practice of theology and uh, spirituality in my own kitchen. I am now, I'm no longer Roman Catholic. I am... um, an Episcopal priest. And I, um, yeah, I, I continue to bake and I continue to cook and those things kind of continue to inform each other, uh, uh, regularly. And now I get to do this. I get to preside at a table in a very particular way, which is incredibly meaningful to me. And I think, 
the thing that I was called to do. So yeah, I get to bless bread and wine every Sunday for a, that? a meal. <laughs> yes. Full circle, full circle. Mm-hmm. All right. So Megan, I, uh, again, really love, love, love the book. Uh, and is this your first book by the way, by any chance? It is my first book. Yeah. I was, oh, um, yeah, an editor. And I mean, I have written a number of, I really was more of a journalist, uh, in my previous life. Um, so I've written a lot of articles, you know, feature articles and done a lot of reporting, but it was not until more recently, I guess in the past like five or six years that I decided to start shifting that and doing more essays and actually, and propose this book. Wow. Cool. So Mm -hmm. with this being your very first book, I would imagine there's a lot of learning that happens uh, for for yourself of just like, wow, that's really interesting. I didn't know that I had that in me or whatever it might be. So, but yeah, was there anything you learned that you learned about yourself as you wrote the book that maybe you didn't know about yourself before? Yeah, absolutely. One is I learned that I can write a book. (laughs) So there's that. I think that was one of that. It can be a very daunting process to sit down and say that you're going to write many thousands of words and you're going to meet a deadline. So, but I did, I learned that I could do that. Um, Even in a pandemic, even with a kid at home and a brand new job and all those things, I still was able to do it. So I learned that. The other thing I learned was I, you know, what's interesting. I was thinking about this the other day about how someone came actually came up to me and was like, I've written a memoir. And I was like, Ooh, memoirs don't sell, you know, Mm. uh, Although I, that's off, that's, I don't think that's true, but you have to be somebody to sell a memoir. And so I think that I had had that, like I worked as an editor for a long time. But I, I had this idea in my head that like, Ooh, why would I even bother to talk about things that are a part of my life? Why would I ever write anything about my own story or my own, you know, my own uh, experiences or my own discoveries? And I think what I learned in writing is that the stuff that came the most easy to me, even though I had kind of fought, including any personal story in a lot of my writing for a long time, was the stuff that was like kind of the most enlightening about just, I mean, I don't know, just the stuff, the stuff that kind of revealed the most to me about the world had actually been like very personally experienced by me. I write a lot in the Mm -hmm. book about my family, about kind of some of my Irish heritage that I had wrestled with. And what that kind of meant for me. I write, I write about my grandparents or about my family. And I was just really shocked at how much family stuff actually came up mm-hmm, as, mm-hmm. as I was writing and how much I wanted to actually include it and uh, uh, yeah, write about it. So the thing I discovered is that, yeah, our own personal stories actually are really worth paying attention to. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, certainly with that, like kind of style of writing uh, there, you know, with with this being like part theology, part memoir, you know, part part even like there's actual, you know, like kind of cooking science stuff going on with it and, mm-hmm. you know, recipes and all those sorts of things It it really uh, that 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 story really, I think, uh, is a through line throughout the book that really does. Mm-hmm. It's just really great. I, I really enjoyed that part. Is there anything that you learned maybe like theologically or maybe about cooking uh, or baking, maybe about bread? Was there anything about any of that that you learned that you didn't know before? Obviously, you, you've you studied theology, you've been baking and cooking for quite some time, so maybe there wasn't too much new stuff. But was there any sort of research that you did maybe theologically or in terms of baking or about bread or whatever it might have been that you didn't know before? Yeah, well, um, I had actually, in if I count researching for this book, you know, when I first got the idea, which was probably at least 10 years ago, um, I had actually been reading the intro of Sandra Katz's book, The Art of Fermentation. Um, mm. It's a pretty nerdy tome 
on fermentation. It's not just recipes, but it has lots of information about how fermentation works. And I had was reading the intro to that where he talked about just like what happens in the process and how important fermentation has been for like human, like for humanity and for culture. And when I started to kind of apply that to the idea of bread, to the fact that like this, pro the process of fermentation itself, which is, if you remember, I didn't remember this. So mm -hmm. it's okay if you didn't. It's anaerobic um mm -hmm. activity mm -hmm. so without oxygen so the process of the uh, of when the yeast in a uh that you put in a bread dough eat the starches so the sugars in the flour um and it does it without oxygen like that process was around in the the very like the at, when the earth was in its most nation stage mm. so like because there wasn't enough oxygen in the air right so um and the fact that things ferment and has perhaps like is kind of partly responsible or is responsible for life as we know it itself. And I mm. thought, oh my gosh, something was happening that happens in bread, at the very beginnings of, of our existence. Um, and that was, that was really interesting to me. Wasn't really sure what to do with that. And then see Sandra Katz also talks a lot about how, um, I mean, he's not, my understanding is he's not like a religious person and the book art of fermentation is not on religion. He talks about what we call like um, a culture. So something that is, so like a sourdough culture, right? So that is mm -hmm. like your, you know, your sourdough starter. We call that a culture. Or we have like a SCOBY for um, something like kombucha, which is mm -hmm. a symbiotic culture of the uh, bacteria and yeast. It's the same word and actually the same meaning when we talk about culture, things mm. that are, but what we do, uh, the things that kind of make life extra wonderful. So things like the arts and philosophy mm -hmm. and theology and food, we call that, we also call that culture. And so fermentation has this like improving, it improves things. It makes things not just kind of comestible or just uh, fermentation that makes things not just um, something that, you know, as a, it's just, it's not just living, like going through the motions, it makes it somehow more living, you know, mm -hmm. gives it more quality to it. And I feel mm -hmm. like that really, I mean, that's how bread becomes bread is through, through the process of fermentation. And I feel like there's just a lot of good theological implications from that. I don't like to draw neat lines between things. So there's a thing happening in science. I think that can just kind of inform some of our, and I might even say some more spiritual reflections. Mm -hmm as opposed to like theological reflection. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I actually really want to talk about that fermentation piece, but like mm -hmm. towards the end of this interview. But I'm really glad that you bring it up now because at the beginning of the book, uh, you begin to talk about like the journey of bread and, and the beginning and all of that. And uh, it's really interesting how soil in particular, where bread starts, right, with soil mm -hmm. and, you know, the the wheats and, um, you know, all the different grains or whatever that would make up bread, they begin in the soil. And it's really interesting that I often hear fermentation described as controlled rot. Mm -hmm. And the process of making soil as well is sort yes. of a controlled rot, right? Like when people compost, yes. Uh, and you're, you've got that compost bin and everything going, it, it, you know, it takes a long, long time, but eventually all those things break down because of a sort of controlled rot, if you will. That's uh, right. And so it's really interesting how uh, not only is fermentation happening within bread uh, with the yeast and, and the sugars breaking down, all of that, 
but also the process of making soil in in a certain in a certain way also has a very similar process and so that's right. really interesting that you bring that up right right and i mean in soil i think i i talk about this in the bread like soil is where it all begins i mean it's, mm -hmm. i mean it's, it's where you grow the wheat right but it is also it is also where we end mm -hmm. absolutely and, oh, yeah. i mean and I, i'm a priest so i'm going to i use all of these religious symbols and ideas and, you know, we say on Ash Wednesday, from dust you came to dust you shall return. Right? Mm -hmm. Recall that this is like our beginning and our end is like in this soil. And yeah, I, I um, really felt like I needed to start with that. I had actually originally had intended to write this book more of kind of following like the life, like we're talking more about milling and talking about growing wheat and harvesting wheat. I mean, just, you know, that there's just all kinds of agricultural metaphors in the Bible. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. I think that when you really start to understand how those things work, then you start to really understand some, maybe some ideas that Jesus was actually talking about. But my, then the book was primarily about agriculture, <laughs> not about bread. And so I ended up kind of rethinking that. But yeah, absolutely in the soil. And the idea, of, the idea of like a controlled rot, that's really interesting because we think of rot as something kind of negative, right? We right. Think yeah. Decaying, right? It's, it's things decaying, but it is actually a part of the process of life. It's a, it's a full life cycle, which also mm -hmm. includes death. And that is actually something that happens in bread with not only like the fermentation. So like when you start bread, particularly if you start like a sourdough, you know, you start with flour and water and you make like an otolus and you let that sit so that the gluten strands can form. And then you add your sourdough starter and your salt. And that gives life to this clay, mm -hmm. right? So there's some take with take from that what you will. And then you kind of, and it gives it this life. And then in the process, and, and I can't take credit for all of this. I mean, I, I've, all, I've come to this realization that this stuff happens, but I've also heard Peter Reinhardt, who is a master baker, um, talk about this stuff too. That not only, so that is like you're giving life to this flower that was, that is actually dead because it came from a seed. Right. And it was ground. Mm -hmm. so once you've ground and milled this like kernel, you, it's, it's dead. Then you add, you add this yeast and now it has like new life. And then in the baking, like the whole point process that you're a part of while you're allowing, getting your, your loaf of your bread dough ready is you're keeping the yeast really happy. And that, that is like what, you know, contributes to the flavor and that's what continues to the, the rise. And then when you put it in the oven, the yeast die. Like mm. that's what happens. They give their last breath and they die. And then we eat it and we are, you know, we have nutrients. And so it, I, it's, I think that bread is this, I don't know, it's just this fascinating process, process of life and death. And it's all part of life. Yeah. We always talk about death and decay as this kind of negative thing. And I just, I'm not totally convinced that it's all that negative. <laughs> right. One of the really interesting things too, about the way you um, start the book again. You you start the book talking about soil, uh, and and you talk about the creation narrative, obviously. And what's really interesting about the creation narrative? It's you know it's a sort of universal narrative about the beginning of all things, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's this universality to that creation narrative. What's also really interesting about bread is almost every culture in the world has some sort of bread that they use in in their cuisine. Yes. I find that really interesting. There's very few, there's maybe like a couple of cultures that come to mind that really don't have bread as a 
part of their their diet or their culture. But mm-hmm. almost every single culture has some type of bread. And right. so there is something very, very universal about bread, just in the same way as there's a universal sort of narrative around how things are created in the world or, or right. that there was a beginning kind of thing. I find right. that really interesting, that connection. Not yeah. only uh, of the be- like how things are made with soil and, and and then soil being a part of the creation narrative, but also the universality of each one of these things, bread and also creation narratives. Right. Because also almost every other cult, every almost every culture or probably every culture has a creation narrative as well. I find that right. so fascinating. Right. And we like long to know our beginning. Right. We have these questions. I remember being in a class when I was studying. Uh, for my master's in theology, it was on creation and eschatology. And, and, you know, there were lots of questions about all the different things. And we just kind of kept back coming back to this idea that like, we all have this question. And that's the universal thing is that we all have the question. The question Mm -hmm. is coming from somewhere within us. It is, it's a collective question that we kind of long for. Like we long for that answer for sure. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Absolutely. Mm -hmm. One of the next steps in the life of bread is what you call inactive time. And I guess I never really thought about, obviously I like in making bread, I've like had to do this, but I've never really thought about like what's actually happening during that time and why it's Mm -hmm. so sacred. So one of the things that's really cool also that connects uh, with inactive time to our lives is that, you know, there are times where we humans don't do really much of anything at a certain time in our lives or we're, or at least it feels inactive. And right. yet there's so much going on. And, and I think that's very similar to this inactive time for bread. You know, there's there's not much that we're doing to the bread or there's really actually nothing that we're doing to the bread during this inactive time. But there's a lot actually going on in the bread itself. Right. right. And so I think our faith is somewhat similar in that regard where there's times where it feels like there's not much happening uh maybe you would call it like a still moment of your life but that's when god sometimes seems to be very active in your life right and so i feel like it's very similar to that uh to that bread so can you talk a little bit more about what you think these kind of inactive moments of our faith is like and how that connects to bread sure you know it's so interesting yesterday i was talking with a colleague and he asked how I was doing. And I said, admittedly, like was related to my work. And I said, admittedly, I'm a little bit bored. And he said, well, that's how, you know, something big's about to happen. Mm. (laughs) It was like, well, that's interesting because I'm not planning for any, I mean, honestly, I'm kind of enjoying the little bit of boredom. And so I don't want anything big to be happening, but I was thinking about like what that means you know, for me, if I'm somebody who likes to be busy and in control of things. And I think Mm -hmm. actually that idea of an active time has a lot to do with like a sense of needing to kind of control where God Mm -hmm. is working in your life, control how, you know, the Holy Spirit has happened, like, you know, making her way. Um, And an inactive time, like, especially like if I'm thinking about baking as a, as a spiritual practice, it truly is a time to be, to just to pause and let God do God's thing. Mm -hmm. And that's really hard. That's really hard for someone like me, for sure. Yeah, it's just, it's an opportunity to rest. I know, I mean, and I think too, there's like lots of like implications for, you know, how we, how we participate in the very capitalist society, right? Mm -hmm. Like we are Mm -hmm. always told to be busy and to work and to produce and to produce and to produce, but perhaps resting is actually incredibly productive for us, Mm -hmm. you know, or is and productive for us, not just as individuals, but actually as a community, right? To mm-hmm. actually be able to pause and let things 
let things be to not have to control everything all the time and not, mm-hmm. not to have to, you know, obviously this is more related to the like consumerism, but to not have to constantly be purchasing and, and turning money, but to actually let God do God's thing and allow us to be community. And that's actually what is happening in during like a proofing stage of bread is like a community is truly being a community. Mm-hmm. Yeasts are just kind of like eating and interacting with each other and they're interacting with the bread and they're, the salt is kind of slowing them down and it's kind of this nice, especially if you have a cool temperature, right? It's like this nice controlled rise, say control, but like, it's just, it's not over, it's not overactive. It's just doing its thing. And that actually is when you get kind of the best bread, the longer the rye, the long, you, you know, this, if you're a baker and a foodie, like actually if you have a longer, slower, like cooler rise of your bread, you actually are going to get a much better flavored bread. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there's something to be learned from that for sure. Right. There is also like you mentioned the little community part that there is something really cool about the fact that during this inactive time is when community is formed, yeah. certainly being formed in a bread. I mean, there really is like a whole ecosystem essentially being formed totally. in this bread. And it's during this time where it feels like there's not much going on. Absolutely. And it's the most important part of bread. It, mm-hmm. it absolutely is. That rise is the most important part for bread to become bread. Right. I mean, it takes the longest, but it is, it is the, it is the most important step. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It it's is. Really, go ahead. I was just going to say the, the other thing that's really cool about bread is so much of it is air. And <laughs> in, in what's really cool is the, that classic great yeasty bread flavor that we mm-hmm. all love. That's really, it really is air. And so they're really, it's not really much of anything. Right. <laughs> And that's so cool to me that this thing that we, the, the what we taste when we taste bread is really nothingness. Right. Know, there's some, maybe there's something there. I think that's I might actually call it even breath. Like it's like, because mm. that, yeah, well, actually to be honest. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's part of, it's part of the natural byproduct of, of yeast eating. <laughs> Sorry. I have a, I have a nine-year-old and so I, I have leaned into the nine-year-old boy humor and yeah, totally when the yeast, the, when the yeast, it's yeast the sugar, yeah, it's totally farting. That's what it is. It's gas. That's what it is. Exactly. But it's, yeah. Or breath, you know, I, I like when Peter Reinhardt talks about, you know, it adding the yeast, it's kind of like giving breath, you know, to what was otherwise clay. And I, I do, I love that. And that is the flavor. That is the true flavor of, of the bread. Like you're right. It's. I wish my ice. farts could smell like that. <laughs> make life a lot easier if my, if my farts smelled exactly yours like bread yours don't I, I wish it did it, clear, it certainly does not Megan sorry sorry I yeah went down that path I should have I should have known that I was inviting that um yeah as a former nine-year-old boy I, I totally get it and there's part of me that's still that totally I want to personally invite you to Theology Beer Camp this October 19th through the 21st, 2023 in Springfield, Missouri. Theology Beer Camp is a time for you to meet some of your favorite theology podcasters, sip on your favorite beverages, and nerd out. You'll meet people like Pete Enns, Dr. Roberto Che Espinoza, Trip Fuller, and even me. And if you register with the link in the episode description and use the promo code MASONGODPOD, all caps, no spaces, you can receive $25 off your ticket. Theology Beer Camp. Come thirsty, get nerdy. I hope to see you there.
One of the other really cool pieces uh, that you mentioned in the book is you talk about faith and doubt being in mm. balance, sort of like sweet and salty, yeah. and that we actually need both sweet and salty to fully enjoy each one of those things. Yes. Uh, we, you know, it, it's one thing for something to be sweet, but if you add some salt to it, it the sweetness is even better and vice yes. versa. And so you talk about, you know, faith and doubt being in balance, just like sweet and saltiness needs to be in balance. So can you talk a little bit more about how faith and doubt uh, need to be like that, that they need to be in balance? Sure. Sometimes I worry that I'm going to be uh, a little bit heretical when I say these, but I always, well, I, you're I really, in the right place <laughs> then if you're going to speak in heresy. <laughs> I truly, truly believe that the most faithful people I know are actually full of doubt, mm. full of doubt. I mean, I actually think that that's probably the case for me too. My spiritual director would certainly say that about me. I'm a priest and I, I do actually share this with my parishioners is maybe I'm, maybe I'm a priest because I have more doubt than anyone else here. And I need to practice this as much as I possibly can in order to enhance the faith, because I also am incredibly faithful. I re I, I am a person of faith and part of my faith is really about the practice of, yeah, the practice of a spirituality that, um, a practice of a spirituality that really like allows for questions and doubt. Absolutely. So mm -hmm. uh, I, um, I talked about a little bit in the book about the story of Thomas. And I know that this is not how everybody reads Thomas and Thomas, uh, one of Jesus's disciples, you know, gets kind of a bad rap for, and he's called the doubting Thomas. And I think a lot about how when Thomas actually shows up after Jesus has risen from the dead and he's been, you know, making appearances and he's actually already made an appearance to the rest of the disciples and just Thomas wasn't there. And, the, you know, the scripture doesn't say anything about why Thomas wasn't there. Right. And I always have wondered, well, maybe somebody else was actually doing the work. Maybe somebody actually had to go and like buy the mm. food, get the stuff to bring back. I don't know. And what happens is, you know, you know, Thomas, yeah, Thomas is expected to believe without seeing anything well the rest of the disciples have actually already seen it right have already seen jesus um and so i think the fact that thomas shows back up anyway even though he hasn't seen jesus and the rest of the disciples have he shows back up to be with his community to be with his friends i think that shows incredible faith mm -hmm. i and i'm like make me i'm a thomas i show you know i the people who show back up anyway and then he and even when jesus shows up he's like well i don't know you know is it actually you let me put my fingers on your side, which also is kind of gross. I always think that that's gross. Um, I mean, I, I'll I, I won't <laughs> speak for Thomas, but as somebody who is like super fascinated by like any injury and whatnot, like I'm like, I'll gladly touch something let that's really that. gross. Like you got a gross wound. Can I touch that? That is yeah. something I totally would do. That's so great. But the fact that he shows up anyway, he just shows back up to be with his friends and after everything that they've endured, he, he still shows up. I think that that is, shows great doubt and also shows great faith. And I think that they go together. Another thing I kind of just kind of relating it back to bread, again, not drawing neat lines, but allowing like kind of this metaphor to really allow us to like reflect on what it actually does mean to have doubt is that when you bake bread, you know, the ones that you get at like a bakery where you're like, oh, that's so hard to do at home. You can do it at home. But the thing is, is that when you bake it at a really high temperature and it's the hot temperature that kind of caramelizes that exterior, mm -hmm. um, the exterior crust. And it just like kind of going through the fire actually like really enhances it. Right. And so 
I think it's similar also with, with doubt and that the more I just, yeah, I, I just see it. The more, when you, the more doubt you have, like if you actually like lean into the doubt and allow for a, the doubt to exist, then the act the faith can also be enhanced. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. the thing that I, t- I mean, the, t- the recipe I include with that chapter is a recipe that <laughs> my son made up my nine-year-old son where, I mean, everyone, he didn't really make it up, but in his mind, he did, right? So he just butters toast and he puts honey on it and then he sprinkles salt on it. And I mm. just always think it's just so wonder. It's so, it's, and it is the best toast when you just really get both. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you have like really high quality ingredients like that in mm-hmm. when it's sim- super simple, but high quality ingredients, it's going right. to be some of the best food you ever put in your mouth. Right. And they enhance, I mean, they just enhance each other. The sweet enhances the salty and the salty enhances the, uh, the sweet. Um, and the other thing about with faith and doubt is I, I really do. I think that my personal background, uh, in as a Christian, as a Roman Catholic actually has a lot to do with how I feel about faith and doubt. So for me, faith has never really been about an intellect, like a list of things I believe. I mean, we have the creed and whatnot, you know, and definitely there's a lot of that in Roman Catholicism, Mm -hmm. but there's so much about being uh, a Catholic. And I still consider myself a Catholic now, even though I'm not a Roman Catholic, or at least a part, like I'm no longer kind of governed by the Roman Catholic institution. I think that so much of what we consider faith is, particularly in this country, is just like what we think. Mm -hmm. What, you know, we say, I believe, what we mean is here using our brains, not necessarily our heart and our hands and our feet and our whole selves. We mean our brains. And for me, faith is still part of that. It's, it's all of it. It's the whole body. It's your whole self. It's your whole story. And so it doesn't doubt then doesn't like affect that as much, right? Doubt doesn't like undermine. So if your doubt tends to be more of like a practice of your mind. And so if faith is like everything and you're just, yeah, if, if faith is your whole body, just having a doubt in your mind is not going to undermine the whole project right. of the faith. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's, I think that's more really like what I mean about it. Yeah. It, it reminds me again of these disciples and, you know, we, we talk about the doubting Thomas, but there are plenty of other times where the disciples of Jesus get Jesus wrong. What they believe about Jesus is often wrong. Right. Uh, we see that consistently. Yet, the reason why we say they are people of faith and why we continue to look at these disciples, why why many of them are saints, the reason for that is because they consistently showed up. Now, That's sometimes right. they didn't. Sometimes they, like, again, they screwed up. But they had the faith that Jesus uh, was, was worth, you know, being, being a part of being a part of that movement. And right. even if they believed the wrong things about him, which again, they often did, they still had this faith to continue with doing life with this guy. Right. Doing life. That's exactly it. That's exactly right. Doing life with this guy. Right. I mean, that's exactly, that's exactly right. Mm-hmm. Well, you can <laughs> tell job, me right as much as you want. <laughs> At the end of the book, you mentioned briefly that we are finding out that the brain is much less central to our way of knowing about things than compared to what we previously thought. You know, Uh we used to think that our brain was kind of the epicenter of of all of what we know and what we do in the world. And we're just finding out that the really the the, the nervous system is very much all throughout our body, not just in our brain. And I think about 
about embody. I, I think embodiment is so important to our way of knowing things, uh, and it's so important to our faith. Uh, and so, yeah, how how does something as simple as making and eating bread, that a very embodied act of making and eating bread, how is something like that just an embodiment of our faith? Right. Well, you know, as someone who grew up Catholic and now is, you know, an Episcopalian, which is kind of born out of like the Anglican church, it's, I have a, I have a particularly incarnational spirituality. I love mm. everything Christmas. I love all the incarnation stuff. And I think that, I think when I, uh, I remember answering this question for somebody else who was like, well, why is bread? So why did, why did everyone go and bake bread during the pandemic? I mean, there are a thousand things we could have done and there were lots of things people did, but like, why was bread such a phenomenon? Mm. And I think that that has to do with the fact that not only, I mean, yes, when you could find the ingredients, not only did it allow for, you know, it allowed you, it, it took time. You could kind of keep going back to it. It's meditative. You get in your body when you bake bread, right? I definitely bake if I just have to work out a problem, like I'm baking, I have to work out a problem in my mind. I kind of get out of my head and get into my body. It, it has a high reward, but I actually feel like bread at a much deeper level, it's not really only a metaphor, not only a metaphor that we can reflect on, but bread itself is sacramental. In the Episcopal Church, we say, like our definition in our tiny little catechism and our prayer books would say that a sacrament is an outward sign of an uh, invisible, an interior and invisible grace given by Christ that also is a means of that, a means of, you know, receiving that grace. So it's mm -hmm. like this multiple thing that happen. And I think that like bread, it just reveals it like, it is this opportunity to participate in the mystery of life that already is, that is all, all these ingredients, for example. So like bread, flour, what we flour, water, yeast, and salt, right? So you have these four super simple ingredients that are like come from the earth, I think, you know, and you just get this chance, you form this community within the bread. And then as the baker, like you're, you're revealing what God has already made holy. You're already, mm. I mean, I feel that way about my own priesthood. It's like, I, my hands are not magic, right? I am just revealing, my job is to reveal what God has already made holy, which is the stuff of our life, right? Mm -hmm. This is just, Stuff. All of this stuff is of, of you know, of creation and to, and then you're also part, you're just participating in it at this, yeah, this very embodied level. So all the, all the stages. So, you know, mixing, adding, you know, mixing the autolis, adding the yeast, kneading the bread, you're participating. There's this participating. And I would even say like an accompanying that happens to, to like, to the community. So it like, yeah, there's even like a kind of a priestly dimension for the baker, you know, to, yeah, to accompany this bread into its life and like through its life cycle and then to like consume it. I just, there's, to me, there's just nothing more embodied about bread. Like it's like the most mm -hmm. embodied of all, of all the things you could possibly cook. It's not mm -hmm. a surprise to me that we break bread and we call that the body of Christ. It's like not surprised. It, it, it makes sense to me. It makes perfect mm -hmm. sense to me. I also love how bread is extraordinarily ordinary. <laughs> There's something just so ordinary about bread. Again, you know, we talked a little bit about how it's so universal throughout every culture, but also, again, these are four simple ingredients that you find everywhere. Yeah. And the yeast are you, in the air. You don't even right. need yeast. It's in the air. 
Right. And you just like you combine these things together and there's just something very simple about it. And yeah, I just really love that that is something that's that this element is so core to our faith is also so simple, so ordinary. It's so ordinary. It's so ubiquitous. Like you said, every culture has its form of bread and it's also very nutritious especially if you use, you know, flour that hasn't had all of its, uh, all of the current, you know, the kernels completely, like as long as it's not just the pure starch, but it still is, it's nutritious. Like we need it. There's a Mm -hmm. reason that bread is synonymous with food. Here's another interesting thing about the embodied part of it too, is that the word that we use for bread in English actually is not, it refers, it, it's like, comes from a like a German term, a German word that like, refers to its brokenness. So it's, Mm. it's pieces. So bread is more like refers to like a piece as opposed to a loaf is like a whole. So we don't refer to Mm. loaf of bread. We refer to bread, which is about how we, it's about its brokenness. It's a piece, Mm. a piece of a whole. So Mm. I think that's pretty remarkable. Yeah. I I love that. You also brought out the nutritious part. I I don't remember where I heard this or when I heard this. Uh, It might've been like one of those Michael Pollan kind of things, but there was something about bread and where where he basically was like with this rise of, or what seems to be so many people who need to like have some sort sort of gluten intolerance. Uh A lot of that he would argue is contributed to the fact that we aren't making bread very well. Like we're not making high quality bread and that if we actually went back to having like making high quality bread, uh, a lot of the the issues that we see with like gluten intolerance would a a lot, not not to say all of it, but a lot of them uh, would kind of go away because of just needing high quality ingredients. And it's just going to be so much more nutritious for a person. And that intolerance uh, would really, we wouldn't see the kind of intolerance. The, The intolerance really is the low quality form of yeah. gluten, not uh, all gluten. Right. I mean, except for people who have celiac. So I actually right, have right. very, very real experience with this is my own husband has uh, struggled with uh, a gluten intolerance. And um, we're, it's a, it's a long journey. So I was like, of course, I'm writing this book and I can't even make, you can't even eat the bread that I'm baking. And it was, it's been a, a bit of a journey. And we've even found that we went to Ireland this past year and he'd, he seems to tolerate when I bake with flour that I get from a mill that's in Illinois, just um, in the middle of Illinois, like central Illinois from it's, it's a, it's um, a mill that I, I visited before, um, when I was writing the book and it's all grown there and they mill their own flour and they, 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 it's, it's incredibly high quality. They don't use what's called like roller mills, which is what you usually get with industrial flour. Mm-hmm. And that like heats up the flour like a lot. Um, and so then they remove in order to, you know, keep it from going rancid, they remove all of anything that has nutrition in the flour. So it's just starch. When you get white flour, it's just starch. So there's no, it's 100% like sifted. So you have none of the germ and none of the kernel of the wheat. Right. Mm. And that's actually where all the nutrient, like that's where all those nutrients from the soil, all those minerals from the soil, Mm -hmm. that's where they are. And even, you know, even when you get whole wheat flour from a grocery store, it, um, they add it back. So it's not even like part of the same flour. Right. So they add germ, right? So they add it back to the flour. It's not part of the same kernel. Now this, if you go, I mean, I, I feel a little bit like sometimes I feel awkward talking about this too, because it, I mean, obviously one is 
way more accessible. It's cheap. It's commodity. It's everywhere. And the other one is more expensive. And, you know, someone like, well, you know, finds out how much I spent on a bag of flour. They're a little like, what? And I'm like, but, <laughs> you know, I adjust things, you know, other, I, I, I adjust things. I don't spend, I don't spend money on other things or whatever. Right. So I, 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 the economics of this always feel a little awkward to me, but when you have a, um, have stone milled flour from like a smaller producer, you actually most, even when you get your white flour, you still get some of the germ and the kernel of um, the, the, yeah, the kernel is actually in the flour. And even what, yeah, when it has, some of it has been extracted and it's from the same wheat that it was, you know, milled with, right. It's not extracted mm -hmm. fully and then added back in. It's part of the right. same plant, the same kernels. And that actually makes a big difference. It's also the stuff we buy is like organically grown as well. A lot of wheat grown in the United States, obviously, um, has it's grown with basically round, Roundup, which is a mm -hmm. herbicide, and herbicide is a. I say I'm getting real nerdy talking about this. It's a desiccant, right? And if you think about that, that means it's removing the water from the plant, and that's what kills these herb the the weeds. So just imagine what that happens when it goes into your gut, mm -hmm. right? Like mm -hmm. that's not it's not great for your gut. The other issue is that like in the United States, we grow a particularly hard kind of wheat that is harder to digest, but does better for kind of more like commodity, you know, right. farming. Yeah, totally. So there's all these things you're right. Indust like in the industrialization of food absolutely, I think does affect those things. And I was, I wasn't so sure I was really ready to buy into all of those things until I experienced it very personally in my own family. Like we went to Ireland and my husband was able to eat every bit of bread. That's incredible. I, I mean, <laughs> again, yeah, it's like it's one of those things where when we have like really high quality ingredients, uh, the, the, a lot of the health issues that we have, uh, uh -huh. not, not to say, you know, it's going to be like a miracle kind of thing where you're going to be cured of all these things. But it really is interesting how so many of these things come down to the fact that we aren't eating and we're not ingesting high quality ingredients. Right. And I mean, I actually, and then to bring it back to like the whole soil thing, it's like it, I, I mean, it comes back to like, how are we caring for this, you know, creation that we have or come on when we commodify our ingredients and we don't see them as food, mm -hmm. right? We see them yeah. as commodities instead. It, it does, it does, it has an actual physical effect on us, not mm -hmm. just a spiritual effect. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's been really actually transformative part of my life with food where my relationship completely changed with food where I used to, and I was an athlete and everything. So everything was about like, how many calories am I getting? How much protein, protein am I getting? All of that. So food was just simply a way to get the kind of calories and protein I need in order for my body to grow and get stronger and faster and whatnot. Right. And then once my athletic career ended, then everything changed about my relationship with food because I didn't need food just simply for its calories and protein and all of that. And all of a sudden I realized, oh wait, food can taste really good and it can be an enjoyable thing to do and be a part of making because mm -hmm. uh, there's something transcendent about it beyond the calories that it provides, that beyond the protein that it provides. There's something transcendent about the making and the eating of food um, that doesn't need to be just simply reduced down to what it really is just doing is just, you know, providing you calories. Right. I mean, I come back to that word, the idea of participation, like it's this way to participate in all of God's plentiful, wonderful creation and all the things that we've been provided and also a way to connect with people 
right? I mean, food is like a, the great connector. Mm -hmm. The best mm -hmm. thing is to sit down at a table with people, to break bread with people. And particularly when you, when you eat, <clears throat> excuse me, when you're eating like a delicious meal, but it doesn't even have to be like super spectacular, just simply breaking bread with another person. I don't know. It is really remarkable. It is, it is a really interesting thing. This, I'm, you brought this up. This is something I think about a lot is yeah. Food and nutrition, as opposed to, you know, just com community and enjoying just flavor. Like, can't we have, can we do both? Right. Can mm. we have nutritious food, food that actually feeds our bodies and also feeds our spirits? Mm. For sure. mm -hmm. This episode of A People's Theology is brought to you by United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities. Are you considering exploring your faith more deeply? Or are you called to ministry, but haven't found a seminary that is quite right for you? When you come to United, you join a community that is intentionally open, socially aware, and theologically adventurous. United's passion is equipping leaders to make real, lasting change in the world through their many different degree programs. Whether your vocation is in faith leadership, nonprofit leadership, academia, the arts, activism, or social entrepreneurship. And the best news is you don't have to uproot your life to attend seminary. United offers maximum flexibility to fit your schedule. Attend on campus or online, part-time or full-time. Their leading distance learning technology allows students to be active in the classroom and engaged with the United community. Want to learn more? Visit unitedseminary.edu forward slash a people's theology or click the link in the episode description and receive a $1,000 scholarship when you apply and are admitted. United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities, training leaders to dismantle systems of oppression, care for the spiritual needs of a multi-faith world, and push the boundaries of theology. At the beginning, we were talking about fermentation, and this is where I want to get back to it. One of the things that I love about both bread and wine being the most kind of common elements of the Eucharist. Obviously, there's some people that won't like drink wine for a variety of reasons. But mm -hmm. typically, you know, we see bread and wine at the Eucharist. And one of the things that I love about both of those being the elements of the Eucharist is that they both have some kind of fermentation going on with them. Yes. Obviously, with bread, we've talked a little bit about the fermentation that happens when we let it rise. Um, you know, we we you know, there's that inactive state where we let it do its thing, and there's a fermentation going on there. And then, obviously, for wine, there's fermentation going on with the grapes. Mm -hmm. I think there's something really cool about the act of fermentation, both being this process where things are dying, things are being broken down, like That's sugars right. or whatever might be being broken down, and it also provides new life, like we talked about, where new communities completely rise up out of these these uh, these elements, uh, whether it's yeast, uh, the, you know, the elements coming out of yeast and flour and water, and all of a sudden you have this entirely new, basically species or organism uh, emerging yeah. out of it. Uh, and same thing with wine. Uh, and so there's something really cool about the fermentation process of both being a process of death and life happening at the same time, and those uh, the the two elements of the Eucharist are very very involved, or their fermentation is very involved in both of those elements. I think there's something really cool about that. So I don't know what what are your thoughts around like fermentation, wine, bread being all involved in that, and you know the the significance of the metaphor of being there, yeah. death and life, and in, in the process of fermentation. Well, you know, Sander Katz talks about the when he talks about wine, grapes becoming wine, he points out that like you know, you're not just with this fermentation is not just extending the life 
of the grape. Because, you know, if you grapes are highly perishable, if you've mm-hmm. ever left a, grapes out on your counter and gotten all the flies and seen them just kind of start to rot away, you know, they're highly perishable unless unless you keep them in the refrigerator and then they don't have as much flavor. Right. Mm-hmm. But why? But when you ferment the uh, when you ferment the grapes, they don't just get their life extended. It turns into something else. And it turns into something even better. Like it's not just like fermented grape juice. That's what it is. It's not like a commodity. It is an elixir. I mean, wine has a very special place in our culture, right? Like we, I mean, we use it in our, in the, uh, in the Eucharist, but like wine is, it's one, it's wonderful. It's, it's just truly wonderful. And it's become something other than what it, what it was, um, what it was before in the process of fermentation. Same thing happens with bread. There's this prayer um, that I say before it's it's supposed to be a private prayer that a priest offers before the actual, like the rite of celebrating the Eucharist starts. And not every priest does this. I definitely do it because it's my, maybe my favorite part of the whole mass is that I, uh, I say, blessed are you Lord God of all creation for through your goodness, we have this bread to offer work of human hands, fruit of the earth, fruit of the earth and work of human hands. It will become for us the bread of life. And then you say the same thing for wine. Blessed are you, Lord God of all creation. Through your goodness, we have this wine to offer. Uh, Fruit of the vine and work of human hands. It will become for us the bread of life. And in that, you know, in those two elements, you're you're recognizing that that the the bread and the wine have had this life already. They're Mm -hmm. not just offerings like our offerings that we have now sitting on this holy table and we're offering to God. They've had, our, had this whole life in the earth. They come from the earth, which God has given to us. So these gifts were already given to us, which we're giving back to God, right? Mm-hmm. Along with ourselves, which we're then we're going to take into our bodies and then continue to be an offering to God. And when I say an offering, I do really mean like we continue to seek out that communion, that relationship with our creator, with, with the divine continue to transcend, you know, transcend who ourselves while also being firmly and fully in ourselves mm-hmm. as people just eating and drinking, just as people eating and drinking. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know. And, and when you like the, the, going back to the fermentation is that you recognize that oh, this stuff has come from the earth. So fruit of the earth, fruit of the vine, work of human hands, not only, you know, are, are we acknowledging that it comes from the earth? We've also already had a part in making this bread. Human mm-hmm. hands have already had a part in making this bread and making this wine. And that's how we got this, you know, that's how we got the bread through fermentation, which was also part of God was also part of that process or the divine was part of that process or it was just natural processes happening. The art, the, the process of fermentation happened, right? And now we're here, we're putting it back on this table. We're going to offer it and then bring it back take it back into ourselves. I just, the whole thing is just, I love those prayers so much. I really do because it just recognizes mm-hmm. the whole life. And then also acknowledging that it's going to continue to have a life beyond, beyond what happens at that table. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Really, really remarkable. We don't do this anywhere. We don't do this. In our, and this is when, why I, I get really excited about Christianity and people are like, Whoa, why, why are you Christian? And I'm like, Look at this thing that we do over and over again. This is, mm-hmm. it's pretty remarkable. And we just don't really get to do that in such a, such a real way over and over again, anywhere else mm-hmm. in, my, in my life, at least. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's part of the reason why it honestly it really sort of irks me when it's just like a little tiny wafer. That's being <laughs> oh <offered. my> God. <laughs> maybe and you know, have thoughts I'm... about that, but oh, I. Like my, my church um, in, in Minneapolis, there's a bakery right across the street and we would always get their like day, day old uh, leftover bread. And, it you know, it's this nice bakery, like this local bakery, and it's just the best bread. And then you go to, you know, like a Catholic mass where you get a little wafer and I'm like this, there, there feels like there's something being missed out by the fact that this is, this is a little tiny wafer versus some really nice hearty bread. To me, there's something theologically missed out there. Oh, I 100% agree. And that could get me kicked out of my church, my parish, not my, not my, not the Episcopal <laughs> church. I, uh, I am an, I'm a priest in the Anglo-Catholic tradition. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Anglo-Catholics and, uh, it, it's, it almost has a, um, pre-Vatican II liturgical style to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, so it's and still all in Latin. It is not in Latin because we're <laughs> Anglican. So we like our oh, English. I see. You know, um, and although we we do something, it, it's this is this is a this is a second podcast, completely different topic. We have some Latin, but um, we have like a lot of piety around the Eucharist. That's when someone asks me, like, what is it about Anglo-Catholicism? And I will say, well, the the the, the key identifying thing about us is this piety around the Eucharist. And to me, it is the most incongruous thing that we use, the most tasteless, bland, horribly textured. And in the summer lately, the texture has been awful. It's just not even crisp. Sometimes you get them and they're crisp and I'm like, well, that's a good one. Um, But they're like stale. And we talk about like the sweetness of the bread and it is just, it is. And the thing is in my tradition, we have a very heavy emphasis on kind of like all the, like the sensual aspects of liturgy. So we have remarkable music. We use smoke and incense and there's, you know, all of this stuff. And then we go to kneel at the altar and you've just given this tasteless bread. It is, it's a cardboard essentially. You know, the thing is, is it's easy. That's what it is. It is, it is easy. You're not in, when you have a particular piety around the Eucharist, you get worried about crumbs and you don't want like crumbs, you know, mixing, you can dip it into the wine. Although that's a whole other thing. Like it's, um, it's just, it is, it's easier. So this may be my, uh, this is my project. I'm not sure I'll ever, I mean, this is like hundreds of years of, you know, tradition. So I'm not sure I'll ever really make, make a lot of progress in that area, but it is really weird to me. It is weird. Mm-hmm. And it is also weird to me like as, as a baker to be like, Oh, this is the bread that I've blessed. And I've said all these beautiful prayers and then you just taste it. And you're like, trying to not yeah. joke as it goes down my throat. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Megan, how do you hope that the sacred life of bread inspires and liberates its readers? Hmm, that is a really good question. I just hope that it does inspire and liberate those who read it. That is truly, I mean, that is truly my only hope. It's, it is one of those things, you know, you write a book and you include, you say all these things that are really meaningful and you want people to read it. Then you're also like, Oh, don't read it. But when, when I, when people tell me they've read it and that it has, has felt nourishing to them, then I feel like I, 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 I did my work. I want people to feel nourished. I want people to feel liberated, not to see faith and to see, I mean, regardless of like, I mean, I'm actually really not 
all that worried about, you know, people believing the right things or even being Christians, right? But I want people to see bread as an opportunity to participate in something that is actually really beyond themselves and allows them to be in community with others, to be in communion with something beyond. Well, I don't know if it's God, the divine or an idea, whatever, but to really, I, I think that bread is this opportunity to really like transcend ourselves. And again, in that transcendence, then being more fully embodied as who we are. And yeah, I want people to feel nourished, nourished by this idea that bread can lead you to something bigger. Mm -hmm. As my like journey with food has changed over the number of years, and I've just really gotten into cooking and making, making food and going out to really (laughs) nice restaurants and all of that, it has completely transformed why I'm still a Christian. It's because what one of the, one of the biggest reasons why I'm still a Christian is because of the Eucharist and specifically the fact that there is food involved in the Eucharist. And so that has been a really life-changing part of my journey. Uh, There's a number of other reasons why I'm still a Christian, but that really is one of the central reasons why I'm still a Christian is because of these practices um, of of the Eucharist. And that's something that we do every single week. I really, really love that. And uh, it's because food's involved. (laughs) Right. It acknowledges our humanity for sure. We need to eat. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, Megan, last question. How can listeners get connected to you and your work and where should they get the book? Sure. Um, You can buy the book anywhere where books are sold. So um, we'll we'll just say bookshop, bookshop bookshop.org, any your independent bookstore, I think even Target. Um, earthsgiantlung.com. That's a, that's a reference to um, a kid's podcast that my kid listens to, Um, Mm -hmm. but Amazon, you can get on Amazon. Yeah. Anywhere books are sold and you can read more of what I do. Um, I have a sub stack called God talk. So godtalk.substack.com. That's kind of an intermittent thing um, because I do, I have this whole other life as a priest that kind of sometimes gets in the way of my writing can also find me on my website, which is meganmurphygill.com. No hyphen. Perfect. Wonderful. Just one word. Well, again, <laughs> this book is absolutely incredible. I, I absolutely loved it. And so thank you so much for chatting more about it and uh, sharing a little bit more about it. Thank you so much. This is just great to talk with you. This is wonderful. I, I love this conversation. Thanks for being, absolutely. thanks for being interested. <laughs> absolutely. If you'd like to connect with Megan and her work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Menega. And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates. Music